morning, let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 19, the last book of the Bible, of course. Revelation chapter 19. I don't know if you know this, but the book of Revelation has a unique blessing. It promises to bless the Lord, those who hear these words, who keep these words, um, that read the words of the book of Revelation. And, um, and I was thinking of that also. I do a lot of thinking between services. But um, because I talked to a pastor not long ago, he said, I've never read the book of Revelation. It's like, really? Okay. So Revelation chapter 19, we're going to read a portion of it through chapter 19 into chapter 20. But we do read, John is he's on the island of Patmos. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name called the Word of God. Verse 14. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that it should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that this week before Christmas that you would just touch our hearts. We're, we're celebrating your first Advent, Lord, but we also know that, um, that you're coming back. So I pray that this means something to us, what our future is, what our perspective is in this life. I pray that we would be attentive to the things that we're going to look at as we cover just a lot of ground this morning. But, Lord, it would cause us to leave this place more in awe and love with you than when we walked in. In Jesus' name, amen. So in our last day series, we do know that the world that we live in is going to come to a conclusion. The kingdoms of this world will come to an end. The climatic event of human history is the second coming of Jesus Christ when he physically returns to this earth in great power and glory. So it will be like lightning flashing from the east to the west, Jesus said. Every eye will see me when I come back. He will return as the king of kings, and the Lord of lords, to judge the nations, to put an end to Satan's deception and destruction. And he will establish his kingdom here on the earth for a thousand years. Jesus promised us that he would come back. In three months, we're going to actually be in Holy Week at the end of March. It'll be here before we know it. And it starts with Palm Sunday. And Christians around the world on Palm Sunday commemorate and remember how Jesus, the account given to us in the Gospels, how he rode into Jerusalem in what is called the triumphal entry. He would get on the full of a donkey, humbly coming into Jerusalem as the people were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But he would weep over Jerusalem because he knew a few days later that they would be crying out, crucify him. We don't want this man ruling over us. And Jesus, we know that as he would accept that public worship for the first time, they call it the triumphal entry. But really, what we're reading about here in Revelation chapter 19, this is the triumphal entry of Jesus. 
riding on a white horse and the armies of heaven coming with him. He comes as the reigning savior. And the Old Testament has many references to the coming of the Lord. 23 of the 27 New Testament books speak of the return of Christ. And we know that there's over 300 references throughout scripture of the coming of Christ. Jesus referred to his coming 20 times and we're exhorted nearly 50 times in scripture to be ready for his coming. In verse 11 here of Revelation chapter 19, we did read, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. In the book of Revelation, we know that the door of heaven actually is opened twice. The first time is in Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapters 4 and 5 is that heavenly scene. And John, he was caught up into heaven in that heavenly scene of Revelation chapters 4 and 5, as Jesus takes the scroll out of the hand of the Father, that seven-sealed scroll, and, and it's, he's described as a lamb that was slain uh, before the foundation of the world. And there was a multitude that was before Jesus, before the lamb, uh, that they were singing this new song. And in that new song, they would sing that you have redeemed us by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and you've made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And to me, it's obvious that's the song of the church. He has redeemed us, hasn't he, by his blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And he has made it a kingdom of priests uh, and kings. That is, uh, we shall reign on the earth. We're going to rule and reign with him. And that's the song of the church. And remember that the return of the Lord has two aspects to it. There is what we talked about in week two of our series, the rapture of the church uh, in detail when Jesus comes for his church. Uh, we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17 to remind you that we're going to meet the Lord in the air, in the clouds. Jesus said, I come when you're least expected, at a time that you do not know. In the second coming of Jesus, he comes back with his church, as we read in verse 14. It tells us, and the armies of heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on a white horse. And we will come through the air, through the clouds, um, just as Jude tells us. Yet he comes with ten thousands of his saints. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13, that we are told that at his coming, he will come with his saints. We are also told in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, that he will come with his mighty angels. And what an incredible sight that's going to be. Even as I've already referred to that Jesus said that every eye will see me. I will come back in great power and glory, like lightning flashing from the east to the west. Now, we live in a part of the country where we see lightning storms in the summertime. I don't know about you, but I like watching lightning storms. To be able to sit out and watch the lightning flash across the sky is so spectacular and, and it's amazing and and sometimes you're just at awe well when Jesus comes back it's going to be even more spectacular more glorious than any lightning storm that we can watch and as we read about that every eye will see him uh, it won't be in secret there have been those in the past that have said well Jesus is going to come back on this date and when he didn't come back they say as they try to explain it away, well, he came secretly, or he came spiritually. It's not what the Bible declares. 
the Bible declares very clearly and specifically that when he comes back to this earth, it will be no secret. Uh, he will come back physically, literally in his coming. And he will come as Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 declares that he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Now what does it mean there in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 when it says that he is coming with clouds? Some commentators and scholars have suggested, well, maybe it just means literal clouds. That is, he comes through the atmosphere. Are we talking nimbus, you know, cumulus clouds? He's going to be coming through the clouds. Maybe perhaps it's that. Others have suggested that maybe it's speaking of the Shekinah glory of God. We know that in the book of Exodus, the children of Israel were led by the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day. So is it speaking of the Shekinah glory of God? Or some have suggested that it refers to the cloud of witnesses as you and I, we're going to be coming back with him, the armies of heaven. And we can think, well, which is it? Is it literal clouds? Is it the glory of God? Is it us, cloud of witnesses coming back? I think all three are true. All three are true in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I know that when I've gone to Israel, that every time that we come flying into Israel, as we're descending through the clouds and in the plane, I'll look out the windows. We're coming into Ben Gurion Airport. And I think this is what it's going to kind of be like, except we won't be in a plane. It'll be on a white horse. And just descending through the clouds and coming in. What a glorious day that's going to be when we come to rule and reign with him in his kingdom. When Jesus comes back, we come in with him. He will return to this earth from the same place when he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. The angels told the disciples that watched him ascend up into heaven that he would return just as he had left. He will return to the mount called Olivet, just east of Jerusalem, where he gave his teaching about his coming called the Olivet Discourse, that we have in the Synoptic Gospels. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 4 confirms that by telling us that in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives, we are told, will be split in the middle from the east to the west by a very large valley, so that half the mountain will move towards the north and half towards the south. So when Jesus comes back, he's going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is going to split. It's going to heave in half, as Zechariah tells us. It's interesting, in the 1960s, they actually discovered a fault that was under the Mount of Olives. And, and so when we go to Israel, we always tell the people that are making arrangements, we don't want to stay on the Mount of Olives, okay? We want to, <laughs> anyway, but we know that there's a fault line that runs right through there, and it's kind of interesting. But notice here, verse 1 of Revelation chapter 19, back to our text. We read that he is called faithful and true. And that is our Lord, and always remember that. The scripture said that the Messiah would come to give us hope. And the Messiah came. Jesus, when he did come, he promised that he would die for the sins of the world. And he did. Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she's going to bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will save his people from their sins. He promised that he would rise from the grave, and he did. He promised that he would come back again, and he will. 
because he is faithful and true to the promises that he makes to us and to you in his word. And know that, especially in this Christmas season as we get ready to head into a new year, that maybe there's a lot of uncertainty that is happening in your life or a situation, or maybe there's just confusion or hurt or pain. But know this, that he's faithful and his word is true for you. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. He's the righteous judge. He is coming as a judge and a general to make war. And we see that a world that rejected him before rejects him again. But this time, he's going to judge those who rejected him. Jesus would declare in John chapter 5 that the Father has given me authority to execute judgment. And he does it in righteousness. And as we read and did read in verse 12, his eyes, when he comes back, were like a flame of fire, John describes. And his head were many crowns he had a name written that no one knew except himself he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God his eyes like a flames of fire similar to John's description of Jesus in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation when he saw the resurrected Lord those eyes of flames which will judge those who have rejected him but also those eyes of flames that will look at you and me with love And all the wood, hay, and stubble of our lives are going to be burnt up. And all the gold and silver and precious stones in our lives and metal will shine forth. Because you see, you and I are going to stand at the beam of reward seat of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Romans chapter 14. And as we stand at the beam of reward seat of Jesus Christ, we're not going to be judged for salvation. We're not going to be judged for our sins. Jesus took the judgment on the cross for you and for me. We cannot earn salvation. We cannot merit it. It comes by faith alone. But with that said, that we will stand before him and all the things that we've done for Christ, all the things motivated because of our love for Christ, are going to shine forth like gold and silver and precious metals. And we're going to be rewarded for what we have done in the body, as Paul writes, that whether good or bad, what we've done for him. And all the, the wood, hay, and stubble is instantly going to burn up. And as I think about that, knowing that we are going to see our Lord, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And he's going to be the one that we're going to see. It isn't Peter at the pearly gates, you know, and all of this. But we're going to stand before our Lord, and he's going to look at you with those, those eyes of, you know, flames is what I imagine. And I hope and pray for me and for you that as we have faith, I know we're going to hear these words. That well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord, and he who is able to keep you from stumbling will present you faultless before his presence with exceeding joy as the book of Jude ends. And we know that we're going to be presented to the Father. And there's going to be great joy that's going to be expressed because what Jesus Christ has done for you, that's how valuable you are to him. So as I consider this, I want to live for him. I don't want to build my life on wood, hay, and stubble, those things that are going to burn up that don't matter. But I want to build my life on the Lord. I I want to build on the precious metals of the Lord, those things that please him and, and for the kingdom of God. I don't want this church to be built on wood, hay, and stubble. And on his head, as we read, were many crowns. In his first coming, he wore a crown of thorns. But in Revelation chapter 19, he's wearing a crown 
many crowns, a, a crown of royalty and authority. He's the king of kings. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. His clothing, a robe dipped in blood. Now there's a debate. Is this his own blood, the blood of Jesus, which cleanses and washes and forgives? Or is this the blood of his enemies? And in verse 14, again, as we read, The armies in heaven, you and me, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed on white horses. That's our future. And I don't know about you, and I'm pretty confident that you feel the same way as I do, that I can't wait for this day. And as I read this, knowing that this is not a myth, this is not fables, this is not fairy tales, this is reality. This is a promise, the one who is true and faithful, that we are going to come back with him. And what it does for me, and when I walk out of this place, that it makes me long for heaven. Second of all, it makes me want to live for heaven. And then thirdly, no matter what I'm going through, and I know there are those in this service that have come through the services this morning, that perhaps you're going through a lot, and it's hard and it's difficult. There's challenges that are before you, maybe pain that's in your life. But I want you to know this, that it's going to be okay. In the end, it's going to be okay. He's going to be with you during this time. His promise is true for you. To bring comfort that you need because he's the God of all comfort that comforts us in all our tribulations. To strengthen you, to be your, your strength, to be your place of stability. But know that it's going to be okay because you're going to go to heaven. And that causes me, as I ponder that, to live in joy and peace and goodwill. The Christmas account in Luke chapter 2 that after the birth of Jesus and then the angel, probably Gabriel, that came and made that declaration to the shepherds that I bring you tidings of great joy that will be to all peoples that in the city of David that is born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then that heavenly host would break out in worship. And at the end of that section there it says that Mary, that she pondered all of those things in her heart. I just picture Mary as she's holding little baby Jesus, say, here is God in human flesh, whether she fully understood that or not. That she pondered these things in her heart. We talk about joy, don't we, this time of year, and peace and goodwill. And as you ponder the magnificent fact that Jesus Christ came to this world, that he came to give us hope, light in the darkness, as he came for a purpose, and that is he would go to a cross to die for your sins and my sins, to give us a living hope as we ponder these things, that we too can have joy, even through the difficulties, a joy unspeakable, even through the confusion, a peace that passes understanding. And goodwill in our hearts because we have the Savior, Jesus Christ, who came for us. And out of his mouth, we read, goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the idea that out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, you know, He's not like a buccaneer or that he's spitting swords, but rather his name, the word of God, it's implying he's simply going to speak and his enemies are going to be defeated. 
You give people the word of God. Let the word of God do its work. Even as we discussed last week, that the word of God, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing in the heart of the division of soul and spirit. You know, the word of God is alive. There's power in the word of God. There's power in the gospel. So give people the word of God. Let it do its work. And also know this, even as he defeats his enemies, that's how we defeat the enemy that comes against us, that lies to us, that tries to deceive us. We speak the word of God because the word of God is true. And he comes to rule and to reign and triumph, to rule the nations, to establish his kingdom, just as predicted in Psalm 2, that messianic psalm. He's in absolute control. I'm going to say that again. He's in absolute control and rule. It's not Buddha. It's not Muhammad. It's not Confucius. It's not any president, no world leader. It's not the Pope. It's not any spiritual guru. It is Jesus alone. And those who teach in the church today that are saying, well, let's not say that Jesus is the only way to heaven, that he's truly king of kings and lord of lords, on this day, they will see how deceived and foolish they were. And in verse 17 of Revelation 19, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds and fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of the kings of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against this army. You see, there's actually two dinners, suppers, that are spoken of in Revelation chapter 19. In the beginning of the chapter, it speaks of the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's where you and I are. We're going to have dinner with Jesus when he comes back. Here it speaks of another supper, the supper of the great God. And as we read, this is where the flesh-eating birds will come and eat of those who are destroyed by the Lord, those who try to keep Jesus from coming back. At the end of the tribulation period, the nations of the world are going to gather, as we've discussed, in the great plain of Jezreel, in the valley of Megiddo. And that's where the last battle, which is called the Battle of Armageddon, will take place. The kings of the east come from the Euphrates River, Revelation chapter 16. Daniel chapter 11 says that the kings of the south will head towards Israel. The kings of the north converging on Israel. And indication is in the book of Daniel that there's going to be fighting amongst each other, but also indication in scriptures that they're there to destroy Israel, to destroy Jerusalem. And in the middle of that battle, they will stop fighting each other when Jesus comes back to fight him. And he will simply speak, and they will be destroyed. And then we see this second uh, uh, dinner, supper, with the birds of the earth eating the flesh of the kings of the world, those who lived after the flesh. And as we finish the chapter in verse 20 of chapter 19, then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence. 
by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive in a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. And moving into chapter 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bombless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon and serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him in the bombless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Jesus comes back. The, the beast, which is a reference to the Antichrist and a false prophet, are going to be cast into the lake of fire. And then an angel is going to come. It doesn't say it's Michael the archangel. It just says an angel. Um, don't think that Satan is the opposite equal of God. He's not. And at this time, when Jesus comes back, he will fulfill his promise that God gave to Israel. People ask me, what is the purpose of the millennium reign? Well, we know that a number of things take place when Jesus returns. When the nations of the world meet in that valley of Jezreel, Megiddo, it will seem like Israel is about ready to be destroyed. And from the book of Zechariah, I'll read it to you. You can jot it down. But in chapter 12, verse 9, it tells us, Zechariah is an amazing prophetic book. And it tells us that it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Zechariah declares that uh, Jerusalem will be a cup of trembling to all the nations. And then after that, we read that as on that day, I'll seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And then we read in verse 10, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierce. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadad Raman in the plain of Megiddo. There will be what we have discussed and talked about, what is called the restoration of Israel. Where the Jews at that time, their eyes are going to be opened up and they're going to realize, they're going to mourn for the one whom they have pierced. They're going to realize that Jesus is their Messiah. Paul would write that on that day, all of Israel will be saved. And even Jesus made a reference to it. The triumphal entry, they waved the palm branches, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it'd be right before he went to the cross, he's weeping over Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I long to gather you to myself as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing to come. And now your house is left to you desolate. And you will not see me anymore until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. At that time, as Joel chapter 2 says, they will call for a fast. It looks like Zechariah chapter 4, half the city goes under, you know, uh, and uh, is taken. And it seems like they're done for. But then they call out to the Lord and he will reveal himself and they will come to know him. We know that also during that time that there's going to be the Abrahamic covenant that will be fulfilled as we discussed in week one. Where the promise given to Abraham, Genesis chapter 15 verse 18. To your descendants I have given this land from the river Egypt to the river Euphrates, that is the boundaries of Israel going to expand greatly. And then the divinity covenant is going to be fulfilled. What is that? 
Well, that's when Jesus is going to sit on the throne of David as promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Jesus ruling from Jerusalem. And we will see, as Matthew chapter 25 tells us in all of it discourse, the judgment of the nations. The tribulation temple where the Antichrist went in and desecrated that temple. The abomination of desolation where he set up an image of himself and declared himself to be God. That will be destroyed. And then a millennium temple will stand in Jerusalem, Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. You can read about that. It's going to be a glorious temple. And then thirdly, Israel is going to experience what is called the new covenant that we get to experience as believers in Christ. But that will take place as well. And in Jeremiah 31, chapter 31, verse 31, I'll read it to you. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will, will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. So this new covenant that they will experience. And then those of brothers and sisters that you know that hold on to replacement theology. You can go on and read verse 35 of Jeremiah chapter 31. You might want to mark it. But thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day? The ordinances of the moon, the stars for light by night. Who disturbs the sea in its waves roar? Well, the Lord of hosts is his name. Listen. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. In other words, it won't. Sun's going to come up. Stars are going to shine. He's saying, I'm not going to cast them away. If heaven above can be measured at the foundation of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all they have done, says the Lord. He says, I will always love them. I won't cast them off. And you can show them these verses. There are those more and more in the church that are holding on to what's called an all-millennium position. That is, all means no. There's no millennium reign. You have to dismiss hundreds of verses in the Old Testament, some, some whole chapters that are given to us. And we know that as the book of Revelation, going back to chapter 20, we read that as he writes, I saw th thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads and on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Verse 5, that's a reference to what we're going to read about in verse 11. When the, unres the unrighteous dead are going to be resurrected and they're going to stand before the great white throne judgment. But we do know that there's going to be those who survived the tribulation period, the sheep that are going to enter into the millennium reign. 
the world's going to repopulate at that time for a thousand years. And what is amazing is at that time, it's an enforced righteousness that's going to happen. Jesus is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron, Psalm 2. Righteousness will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. And we know that at the end of that thousand years, that Satan is going to be let out. Verse 7, it tells us, now when a thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. And they will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is of the sand of the sea. They went up to the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So after the thousand years, an angel comes when Jesus comes back, bounds up Satan, throws him into the bottomless pit, into the abyss. After the thousand years, Satan is let out. And he's going to lead this rebellion that's referred to Gog and, and Magog. It's a symbolic language of rebellion against the Lord. It is not the same as Ezekiel 38 and 39 for various reasons. But we know that the nations of the world, that there's going to be many. The number of the sand on the shores are going to join in in this rebellion. Isn't that amazing? I mean, here they are, the, the, the light of the world ruling from Jerusalem. We know that it speaks of no more war. There are those who do teach that in the millennium reign, that we are in the millennium reign. A few people. We're not in the millennium reign. Jesus hasn't come back. And we know that in Isaiah chapter 2, that it shall come to pass in the latter days. And Isaiah begins to speak about how we're going to come up to the mountain of God. And all the nations shall flow to it. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways. The Lord's going to be there teaching us. The millennium temple that's going to be there. But then in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn of war anymore. Now that might sound familiar to some of you because in verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 2, when it says that they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, Nation won't lift up sword against nation, nor shall they learn of war anymore. That's inscribed on the entrance of the United Nations. They don't say anything about he's going to come and and judge the nations. They just use that verse, and there's going to be, you know, no peace that's going to come from the United Nations. It's only going to come when the Prince of Peace comes to rule and reign. So there's still war going on. There's still a lot of turmoil going on. So we're not in the millennium reign, obviously. Now, why would Satan be led out to lead this rebellion? Because those born in the millennium reign, obviously, that they don't have a heart for the Lord is going to become obvious that they make a choice that they're going to follow Satan. It still amazes me that they would do that. Well, that's going to be put down. Satan's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. There will be a great white throne judgment as the heavens and earth are dissolved. Verse 11 of of Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it and whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. Peter talks about the same thing. So the heaven and earth that we know now are going to go up in a fervent heat. That's what Peter writes. 
He says that the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burnt up. You might remember in our Colossians study in chapter 1, speaking of the preeminence of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ, that all things were created by him and for him. You were created for him, for his good pleasures. The four living, you know, creatures, the 24 elders are worshiping the Lord and they're, they're singing before the Lord and saying that we were created for his good pleasures. You were created by him and you were created for him. And listen, anything less than that, you're going to find yourself being empty and unfulfilled and unsatisfied because you were created by him and for him. And then it goes on to say all things consist by Jesus or held together by Jesus. Listen, he holds it all together. He holds all of creation together. He holds the atom together. And there are the physicists and guys who are a whole lot smarter than I am. They always wonder how you keep that atom together, you know, like particles instead of repelling, you know, and and the atom exploding, and they got all kinds of theories and uh, about all of that, but still it's kind of a mystery. You know who holds it all together? The atom. The earth in its orbit, the moon in its orbit, you know, order in the universe. Who holds it all together? The Lord does. And one day he's going to let it go. And it's all going to go up in a nuclear explosion. So number one, it reminds me, don't get too attached to the things that you have on this earth. When somebody scratches that new card that you get, you know, it's all going to burn, okay? (laughs) And of course, we want to take care of the things that we have and be good stewards. But don't get too attached to it because it's all going to, to go up in a fervent heat. And that which we have done for Christ, that's what's going to last. But second of all, Not only does he hold all creation together and the atom together. But he wants to hold your life together. Will you let him do that? And if any of us say that, Lord, I don't want you to have preeminence in my life. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to go my own direction. You know what you're going to find is your life is going to begin to unravel. You were created by him and for him. And he desires to hold your life together, your family together, your marriage together. Your job, your business, everything. Let him hold it together. And live for him because he's coming back. And as you read the rest of the chapter, it says that the unrighteous dead are resurrected. They stand before the great white throne judgment. Out in the vast darkness, we won't be at the great white throne judgment, at least stand before it. And they will be sentenced in the hour of darkness. This is reality. And then he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. The last two chapters, we're going to be with him for all eternity. That is your future. That is my future. So we don't have to be afraid. Because 2,000 years ago, this one, that heaven's going to name him Yahshua, the Lord thy salvation. He's going to come. 
And he's going to save his people from their sin. And it gives us a living hope and a wonderful future that's ahead for us. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for your word given to us. I thank you that we can take the time, and sometimes we kind of read this with not a whole lot of thought to it, but how glorious it is to know that you're going to come and rule and reign, and we get to rule and reign with you. So, Lord, we want to live for you. We long for that time. In the meantime, we occupy till you come to be wise and faithful and not go to sleep spiritually. Lord, I thank you that we have a living hope that comes through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. He promised that he would die for our sins, and he did. And he promised that he would rise again after three days, and he did. He conquered sin and death, proving that he's the Son of God. And I pray for anyone who may be here that you've never committed your life to Christ. Maybe you're watching online. Don't, don't turn it off. Today is the day of salvation. To make that commitment to him as Lord and Savior. To realize that you are a sinner that needs forgiveness. To repent and turn to Christ and call out to him. He loves you so much. You are created by him and for him, for his good pleasures. And he came to save you. He is the Savior of the world. Not a Savior. He is the Savior. And he loves you. And he says, today is the day of salvation. Because tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. If you're not right with the Lord, if you haven't made a commitment to Christ, now's the time to do it. He's calling you. He says, come. And you can do so right now, sincerely in your heart. That you can say, Lord, in my heart, I sincerely believe that you came and died for me, and I now yield my life to you. Forgive me of my sins. I believe you rose again, and you're speaking to my heart, and I ask that you sit upon the throne of my heart now as Lord and Savior. I want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life. And I thank you for coming 2,000 years ago to this world to die for me. And I thank you for the promise of heaven before me. In Jesus' name. Father, I just pray you bless everyone here. I know some are going to be traveling. Keep them safe. Bring them back to us safely. Bless our time with family, with friends. And may we proclaim the good news, the good tidings of great joy that will be to all peoples. That born in the city of David, a Savior, Christ the Lord. That you fill us with your joy and peace and goodwill as we just ponder these wonderful truths of your first coming, the first advent of Jesus, the suffering Messiah that came and died for our sins, and knowing that he's going to come as the reigning Messiah and Savior and Lord. So fill our hearts with just joy and peace and goodwill. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand?